You're listening to the Sustainable Angler Podcast. I'm your host, Rick Crawford. In this episode, I interview uh, the venturing angler founder, Tim Harden. And uh, Tim and I had, had met the first time at Abaco Lodge a couple of years ago, about a year and a half ago, I guess. And um, I was down there conducting a sustainability assessment and met Tim. We fished for a few days and um, had a blast catching a, a, a ton of bonefish down um, at Abaco Lodge. And uh, we've been trying to get this podcast scheduled for, for a while. Um, so excited to finally uh, get this out on the, on the interwebs. And um, in this episode, we talk about um, how and, and why Tim founded uh, The Venturing Angler, um, have a pretty in-depth discussion on, on climate change and, and, and some important conservation success stories like um, a day for Bristol Bay, which we'll, we'll get into more. Um, but we also talk about you know, our responsibility as anglers to, to take action to protect what we love. And believe it or not, um, aside from some book recommendations, we actually conclude with a chat about the Wu-Tang Clan. So, um, hope you enjoy. This episode of the Sustainable Angler Podcast is brought to you by Olakai. Olakai handcrafts Hawaii-inspired footwear, finding inspiration in Hawaiian culture and craftsmanship. Fishing is at the heart of Hawaiian culture today, just as it has been for centuries. Generations of fishermen and women expertly cast from rocky shorelines and sandy beaches. They spearfish, throw net, fly fish, and navigate their boats beyond the reef and into the deep blue in search of the next big catch. No matter how they do it, there's an attention to detail and respect for the ocean that guides their passion. At Olakai, they believe in the same attention to detail when crafting the highest quality shoes and sandals built for every type of marine environment. Olakai's water-friendly Moku slip-on shoe features razor siping with non-marking rubber for extra grip on the deck, the dock, or the rocks, and it's designed for easy on-off barefoot wear. When it comes to sandals that perform, Olakai's new Ulele provides the comfort and durability of a sneaker for those long days on the boat or on the shore. Personally, I love that Olakai is a B Corps, meaning they meet the highest social and environmental standards as a company. But on the product performance front, I love the grip on both the Nahayamoku and Uleles, which is perfect for boating or pulling a flat looking for tails. Whether you're loading up the boat, shoreline fishing from the rocks, or scoping out the best place to set up on the beach, Olakai takes you further. Shop or find your local retailer at olakai.com. Get things kicked off, and if you wanted to just provide a little little intro, and, and we'll go from there. Sure, yeah. And, um, you know, it, it's funny when you said that we've been trying to get the schedule. It even, there may have been a little bit of avoidance behavior <laughs> on my end, <laughs> um, which is funny because I have a podcast, but um, almost everything I do in the industry is about other people. And right. so the idea of being 
the interview, the person being interviewed freaked me out a little bit. And so, <laughs> um, but over the course of that year, uh, I've been watching what you've been doing. Not that I wasn't familiar before, but um, I've watched the growth and am excited about what you're doing. And I thought, you know, if this is really about environmental issues, of course, that's what I want to talk about. So I'm excited about that. And that trip at Abaco was great. I mean, uh, thinking about it, now is a little sad uh, because the lodge was destroyed uh, with Hurricane Dorian on September 1st. But um, uh, that trip was great. Uh, It was, I take a lot of, I'm lucky I'm I'm able to take a lot of trips and and they're almost always places that my wife would never want to go to, you know, they're, And so I, I rarely think about that. <laughs> and I walked into my room at Abaco Lodge and instead of thinking like, oh, wow, this is beautiful or, you know, comfortable bed or whatever, it was like, oh, no, <laughs> because it, it was such a perfect destination, um, you know, for just a relaxing time, especially with um my wife it's, it sounds like i'm trying to sell the lodge right now i'm not um <laughs> but then the fishing was great and um i think we were on the boat together for three days and yeah. i was under the weather um and so i don't know if you remember but i would like lay down while you oh, were yeah. fishing and, and then you'd catch a bonefish and i'd like you know jump up from like the fetal position and catch a bonefish and then we go back and forth and so um you know it never feels good to feel bad but i like that that happened because it kind of makes for a fond memory yeah yeah absolutely no i definitely remember that you 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 lay down and basically take a little cat nap and then i'd be (laughs) like i'd be like fish on you'd be like okay okay i'm ready i'm ready i'm ready yeah (laughs) so so i'd be like you know how's your day fishing i took like four naps and caught like five bonefish so (laughs) (laughs) Um, well that, well that's, and, and, and so you mentioned like, so you have been lucky to, to get to do some, some traveling with your work. Can, can you, I'm sure everyone listening to this is, is familiar with, with your, uh, with your site, the venturing angler, but, um, how did, how did, how did you get started with that? Like, I mean, so, you know, you, you've kind of been, um, a, a, I feel like a, a major figure in the in the industry from the media side and from the um from the venturing angler like how, how did all that get started and and what 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 drove you to uh to work in fly fishing um yeah i mean i i guess i'll it makes sense to start from the beginning um and it, it doesn't necessarily make me look good but people grow i guess um <laughs> the the uh Hmm. The, I think I got started in the fly fishing industry in like 99 or 2000. I can't remember the year, but I was in college in Denver, um, at Regis university. And, um, you know, I was kind of a diehard angler and just got mostly conventional though, to be honest. Um, I grew up in the DC area and fished like Maryland a lot in West Virginia. Um, and you know, like you do when, if you move from that area to Colorado, like I got really into fly fishing and started working at a fly shop. Um, I think I was a good angler, not a great one and, um, was obsessive. So I think I had enough 
at least I thought I had enough expertise to work in the shop. So the shop was called the Denver Angler. It's moved, and the the owner was this really great guy named Rick Typher. Um, and I I'm only giving him a shout out in case he's open to forgiveness. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but we had a great relationship. You know, I, I sold a lot of things in the shop. Loved working there. But like you see, um, you know, time and time and time and time again, it's like the young guy. Um, in the industry like gets his first role and then thinks you know too much of himself um yeah and so <laughs> it was it you know it i felt like and i yeah, i think i got i got to be on a radio show twice in like my first year or so of working for this guy and so i i think i thought that you know the sky was the limit for my career and I was already like this, you know, 20 year old or whatever. I don't know. I actually don't remember what year it was. So maybe I was a little bit older, unfortunately, you know, future industry heavy, heavyweight, which was ridiculous. And I wasn't like that good of an employee, to be honest. I knew that <laughs> I knew the, uh, I was passionate about it. I wanted to be good. Um, I sold a lot of reels. Um, but you know, one of my, a story that I'll never forget is, um, uh, and I hope I'm not going on too long already. This is this is no, 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 no. This is this is great. <laughs> this um, right as the relationship was imploding, um, he he came to me like it was the middle of February. Our location wasn't the best. He ended up moving. Um, he said something like, "You know, can we have a talk?" And I was like, "Yeah." And he said a customer came in on Saturday and said that when she came into the shop, there was no one to be found. There was no employee. And then she walked up to the counter and, um, saw you sleeping <laughs> <laughs> on the floor. And he's like, he's like, is this true? And I think my response was something like, well, it's a possibility. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is very, very possible. Uh. <laughs> um, and that was like the end. I mean, all right. Well, I uh, I thought this might be a a good chance to take a quick break and thank uh, Monic Flylines for uh, sponsoring this episode of the Sustainable Angler. Monic fly lines are handmade in Boulder, Colorado, with PVC-free coatings and advanced core materials not made from vinyl, making them the most environmentally friendly and technologically advanced lines on the market. With lines for cold or warm weather and fresh or salt water, Monic has got you covered no matter the situation. Engineered by anglers for anglers. So you can head over to www.monic.com and enter the discount code the Sustainable Angler 10 when checking out to receive a 10% discount on your order. So that's the Sustainable Angler spelled out and then the numbers 10 for a 10% discount. So like I, I left this fly shop and I thought, you know, what do I do now? And my biggest concern 
was not losing pro staff stat- status for a real company. <laughs> oh, and yeah. this is, this is one of the most pathetic things I've ever done. <laughs> so I guess that's good, but yeah, well, hey, look, I, well, the, the pathetic thing was I went to a fly shop to try to get a job because they were a dealer of that real company. They didn't have an opening. And so I was like, well, let me just help out. <laughs> so well, basically- can i just hang around here and <laughs> yeah so i was like giving them a little bit it didn't it was it wasn't for a very long period of time maybe a couple of weeks i don't know but it was like i was giving them a little bit of free work hoping that they would hire me but also ensuring that i had industry discounts and i wasn't losing pro staff status which is <laughs> so disgraceful (laughs) but i think it's you know again getting back to what i how i introduced the story was you see it time and time and time again a sport that's supposed to connect you know detach people from their ego and connect them to nature and being something that is used as a tool for self-promotion and ego and, and stuff like that so so yeah that was sort of like a low point and um uh, had a mix of other jobs in the industry after that, um, including uh, some guiding uh, in in not too far from Denver. In and um, I worked. There were there were two really cool magazines. Um, this was in two thousand seven. Uh, Fly fishing trade. Uh, we now have angling trade, but at the time it, there was fly fishing trade and wild on the fly. Do you remember Wild on the Fly by chance? I I don't. I, it sounds yeah. familiar, but it's, it's it's there's always like a I don't know. It, it, very few people remember it. The people who remember it are just like, oh man, I remember that magazine when that when the magazine came out. It was shaped um, like National Geographic. It oh, had sweet. it had a not a gold border around it like Nat Geo does, but it had a different color for every issue, and it was the first time that fly fishing media really stepped up its game and it had incredible um professional photography that still to this day would be you know top level photography and then it had writing that was i mean that you still can rarely find and it was it was out of boulder colorado um it was a dream of mine to work for the magazine for a long time and i I worked there for about a year um, and ultimately decided to go to grad school to, to bail out of fly fishing. I, you know, I think I was probably going about it all wrong. Um, well, hindsight is 2020, but you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, it's like, I probably wanted to be famous or something. I don't know what that is, but you know, now, I, I was a kid, but, um, I went off to grad school and wanted nothing to do with fly fishing ever again, which is a bit sad because fishing since I was like a little kid was always a thing. And, um, and I got a, I had a, a decent job outside of the industry and but I, to, to be more fuel efficient and have a reliable car, I got a Subaru, which is usually a smart move. It was the worst Subaru ever made. You got a lemon? Yeah, it was always in the shop with huge bills. And I was like, oh my God, what am I going to do? I'm going to, this car is going to kill me financially. So 
I needed money I, with the job that I had. I couldn't get a part-time job. So, um, I was like, well, I know the fly fishing industry. So I created, um, a guide directory, um, to sell ads and it worked. And I thought, you know, there's, you know, directories just like the yellow pages used to be are, you know, they're useful, but they're inherently boring. So, um, I created the venturing angler to sort of have something that's more, uh, you know, interesting. And then that sort of took a life of its own. And then, you know, obviously I'm, I'm back to loving fishing and, you know, got rid of the self-serving part of it. Um, and, uh, the venturing angler, I, I can't, it's almost, it's been around a while. Um, maybe 10 years or so. Wow. And, uh, yeah. Um, it's, uh, I'm still amazed by it. Um, you know, I'm kind of reclusive, um, on my own. I'm, I'm a pretty big introvert. And so, you know, I see the stats and I'm always impressed with how many people are visiting the site. Occasionally I meet people who are like, yeah, I listen to your podcast and I can't believe it. Um, <laughs> cause you see the stats, but you don't see the people. Um, right, but it's something right. that I've loved. Um, especially honestly, when pushing environmental issues. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something too, that, you know, for, for me, um, personally that, that, you know, before having met you and, and fished with you, um, I used to tune in to, to the venturing angler and, um, to your environmental section, just to always get like a snapshot or see what's happening. Um, cause there's so much, timely and, and relevant information that that's always um on your site which i love and 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 having spent time fishing with you which was super interesting is you know we had um i i can't remember you'll have to fill in a little bit of the details tim but don't you teach about climate change at, at yeah high school um, I mean, yeah, there's a, I, I teach a course called ecological justice. Um, yeah. so, um, yeah, I mean with like, with like the venturing angler and then a lot of the other things I do, um, it, it has to be about that. Um, it, it's, you know, it, it, certainly the majority of the content on the venturing angler is not, about environmental issues, but if it's not a platform for that, then I'm probably worse off than I was when I was helping out a fly shop for free to be on a pro staff. Um, right. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, I, uh, I, I teach um, uh, an ecological justice course. That's the name of the course. Um, two sections of it a year in California. And so, you know, it's, it's, I've always been interested in justice issues. And, you know, uh, in college, I was probably more interested in you know, labor and war and peace issues. And after college, it's, I think, e even into my late 20s, um, war and peace issues were the ones that got the most my attention. And then, and I've always, because I've been an angler, you, you always do care about environmental issues. Um, and I always have. But upon studying what's going on, it, you know, when that happened, it, it shook me up. And so um, that now is really my focus. 
Yep. And, and can you give me an, uh, like an example of like, so when you say like, I understand what that means, you know, it's like uh, environmental justice, but can you, can you give like an example of, um, a, a topic in, in, in one of your courses there? Yeah. So, um, the course, uh, it, it's looking at issues as ecological justice, but then as also issues related to human suffering. Um, and so it, it, the way it's introduced is through really for maybe a month or a month and a half looking at frameworks um, for, for studying issues. And so, um, so that, that students can take case study approaches to these issues mm-hmm. um, and really examine each issue um, through a process of, uh, you know, like critical intellectualism. So um, I just made up that. I don't know what I would call it. <laughs> I, I, don't like, I don't like how that sounds already. So it's not, it's not, you know, whatever. But the <laughs> after that, um, we dive into the issues and, um, and so, um, that's going to be climate change, deforestation, um, energy issues, food and water, mining, ocean issues, um, you know, poverty, um, and, you know, environmental racism, um, and, throughout a course like this and, and, you know, in high school, if you take like an AP environmental studies class, you know, I think you're going to most certainly be studying salmon, uh, maybe other issues with salmonids dams. And so, you know, the connection to fly fishing is, is pretty strong and close. Um, so. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's something that, you know, we, we talked a lot about on the boat um, when we, when we were fishing together and obviously have similar views, but I think that it's safe to say that, you know, climate change is probably, well, not probably, I mean, I think it is the single greatest threat to fisheries around the world. You know, when it comes to freshwater fisheries, there's less snowpack, there's more droughts, more wildfires, warmer stream temps, um, when it comes to the ocean, you know, we're, we're starting to see, um, on the coast. And I I was talking to some people in Maryland, which is just crazy, but you're starting to see migratory patterns change significantly of fish, um, as they're, they're following their, you know, they're, they're, they're following the, the right temperature for them. Like they're actually opening a white shrimp fishery in Maryland uh, mm. next year, which is crazy. And like they're catching a bunch of redfish up there, which they used to, you know, occasionally catch. So there's tarpon. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. I've been so, hearing about people finding tarpon, and you know, that's it's not that they haven't been there before, um, but it's it's you know things are changing. Yeah. Right. And, and, and so, so yeah, you, 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 you're, you're, you're seeing it, it's happening now. And so um, I wanted to just sort of have a sort of open conversation and just get, get your thoughts on um, some of the ways that, you know, 
climate change. We mentioned a, a few there, but it is impacting our fisheries and um, just kind of a open-ended question there of, you know, what are, what are, what are your thoughts there? Yeah. I mean, and, and, and first, you know, related to that, but before digging in further, I, you know, I said things like I used to care about other issues more. It, it's, it's not that I care about them less. You know, it's not like I'm like apathetic now towards war and peace <laughs> or, right. or labor issues, but I've realized that um, every issue, every major issue from migration to you know, violent conflict now is being fueled more than ever by climate change. Right. Um, and as I'm sure you've experienced, you, you know, when you're communicating about this, a response you get is like, uh, like chill out. Um, the, it's not that bad. Someone said to me recently, um, uh, someone, I, I was getting ready to teach a class and someone said, what, are you teaching about today? And I said, you know, something like the climate catastrophe of some something. He's like, well, not in my lifetime. Oh no. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> if you're in Bangladesh, uh, coastal Bangladesh or Indonesia or, or, you know, drought plagued areas of Africa, it is apocalyptic catastrophic. You know, you name the, the 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 ways the words to describe it that are as extreme as you get and that is what it is and so um and that's happening today yeah that is happening today it's happening right now you have people losing water property um there's all sorts of migration i mean there there are scholars who believe that um lacking harvest led to the arab spring um you know, as always with a lot of these issues, it, they're complex. And so there's probably a web of things fueling, you know, these these big events. But access to food, um, economic opportunities, water, they're a factor. Um, and so, um, you know, th things are bad. Like if I, I don't know if I, if the California drought affected, you know, avocado prices i'm lucky enough to be able to not have to pay attention um but you know the house i'm calling from right now um you know could be underwater uh with with a minimal amount of sea level rising and some some big tides and so um yeah it is right now and i think there's one of the places you'd see that the most is with salmonids um, trout, salmon, and steelhead are so vulnerable to water temperatures. And I worked in a, a fly shop in San Jose and for the record, did a good job. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I just, I just want to make that clear. Did a stellar job there. <laughs> yeah. Um, things went well. I still have those relationships intact. I was older, but, um, I, I I'll never forget because I you know I spent most of my time in D.C. Maryland and Colorado. I'd um, I'd hear people in the fly shop say like, "Yeah, you used to be able to just walk right over to whatever whatever creek and walk across the backs of salmon." And I'd be like, "Oh, when was that?" 
you know, and it wasn't long ago. Uh, it was maybe the sixties. And so in a short amount of time, what we've already done is jarring. Right. And the, um, you know, I'm in California. So you, you see very clearly what has, you know, we used to have salmon steelhead running all the way down to Southern California. Now I kind of sometimes, depending on where I'm fishing, have mixed feelings about fishing for them at all. Um, I was fishing at Steelhead River. Um, I actually haven't been steelhead. I went steelheading New Year's Eve and New Year's Day last year, but prior to that, I hadn't been in a couple of years because the trip prior, it took, I didn't make it to my destination the night that I left to go fish um, because of fires. Um, mm. I was just driving through basically the ash of people's you know, lives. Um, I got... I didn't make it, so I had to stay in some some motel somewhere. And then the next day, I got up to where I was going to fish, and that place had been wrecked by fires too. And so I was in all sorts of traffic where they were trying to repair things. Um, And then, you know, it was seeing an insufficient amount of water, degraded habitat, and then the next morning, I saw a dead baby bear on the side of the road. And I was just like, so done um that i got out of there and i think it left such a bitter taste in my mouth i haven't been back for a while but you know in a lot of places so you, we don't have the same trout salmon and steel or trout obviously are doing better but um we don't have the fishing that we used to have um i don't know anyone who fishes the russian river but that's sort of the epicenter for where it all began in the state um and now i've got questions about if we should even be fishing for some of the other species, but the, the fish are gone. The California state flag has a grizzly bear on it. We don't have those either. Um, we, the, the range dark outside here, but if I looked out the window, um, I'd be able to see a little bit of a, I think I would, I'm, I'm close to the Santa Cruz mountains. Um, they, they used to have one of the biggest populations of grizzly bears. And again, this is not that long. Yeah. It's not that long ago. And so, um, uh, so what's the impact going to be? I mean, we see it all the time in Colorado. We were always concerned about the health of trout. Um, we had, you know, I was there during drought years when you would, it was questionable about whether you should even fish for them in areas of the South Platte and other rivers too. Um, and then, you know, bring in temperature increases and it's and, 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 and when you mentioned the um whether you should even fish for them j- just to clarify you're talking about because of warmer stream temperatures which is going to stress the fish uh well there's that yeah and and we often do a pretty good job with that sometimes we don't but but also just with populations yeah and so you know if if i'm going to one of the rivers in california where it might take days or a week to catch a fish. Should I be catching that fish mm-hmm. as it's in the system to spawn? Um, I don't know. Probably not. Well, what? And what so, well, sorry, go ahead. No, um, I think, yeah, I think we're, we're entering some, some scary times with, with salmonids and there's good things happening too. Um, you know, the, the Klamath river dams, there's four of them that are coming down 
uh, in 2021, I think that's a big deal. Um, but I'm, sh- you know, and, and anytime I speak about environmental issues, people say like, Oh no, I went, you know, <laughs> I went fishing the other day and it was great. What are you talking about? Um, but I wouldn't be surprised if most of us who fish cold waters are making decisions about when to fish and not to fish based on conditions that we that that previous generations didn't really have to take under consideration oh yeah i mean you know it's middle of the day in august you know probably gonna (laughs) make the decision to fish in the morning or the evening you know i mean it's just kind of yeah um and it's you know i i'm not I'm not, you told me I need to be hopeful, but I'm not optimistic. <laughs> I mean, I, I, do, I do see things happening um, that are good and that I get excited about. Um, but at the same time, I mean, <laughs> you would see these trout in Colorado that were clearly, I mean, they were overfished, but they didn't have healthy water. The, the the whole i don't want to name places so that's why i'm kind of hesitating a little bit you would look around a a river in the in the western united states yeah well well, yeah i don't i don't want to name like you know yeah i gotta be careful but um you'd see like x river and look around and you could see clearly the fit you could see all the fish because the water was so low um coming out of a dam but you could also see the fish were like mangled diseased overcaught um they had no habitat they had no cover and then anglers would be coming together to support said river which is great by helping maintain trails or <laughs> right i'm not saying that doesn't have value <laughs> yeah yeah but i mean if i were to really look at that issue Denver, Denver water, I don't want to name Denver water at the company itself, but what people do with water in the front range is insane. Um, And so that's probably root cause number one. Um, And so what I've always wanted to see is people up in arms talking about Denver water usage or front range water usage instead, you know, the people who care the most might be building trails or having like a, you know, film event with beers, but, and, and those things are good, but I get concerned when I don't see a response to a crisis that even shows it, it, the, the response is lacking. Yeah. Well, I mean, and that's, you know, you, you, you bring that up and that's sort of what I think that um, we're, that you and I are both trying to accomplish through, um, through for one, having this conversation, right? You know, um, but also through the venturing angle on your site and your podcast, you, you're bringing these issues to light. And I think that that's sort of um, what is you know, how I think for me, it was like, how can I make an impact? Like what is going to be a way for me to basically be able to 
sleep a little bit better at night knowing that I'm, I'm trying to be part of the solution. Um, and I think we're, we're both doing that through in, in our own ways through our, our websites. And, um, you're obviously teaching kids about climate justice, um, but also bringing awareness and raising awareness through your, through your site and podcast. So, uh, you know, I think the, this is, I mentioned this quote the other day, but I've, I've been, have you, have you ever read, uh, Paul Hawken, any, any of his books? I've got, I've got drawdown sitting right next to me. Yeah. Um, but I haven't read it. <laughs> well, it's sitting right next to me because it's coming <laughs> um yeah so i yeah i've got drawdown too for anyone who's looking for a um a good read project drawdown um is really good it's 100 solutions to solve global warming some of the solutions are pretty are, are surprising just stuff that you you, you might not think of off the top of your head. I think everyone immediately just think goes to renewable energy. And um, just as there are, you mentioned something earlier about um, like Arab spring, and I'm sure that was a complex problem. Well, it's the same thing with global warming, right? There's, there's a lot of different solutions. It's complex. There's not one um, silver bullet that, that solves it all. It takes a lot of different things happening. Um but Paul Hawken has also written some other books. Uh, the Ecology of Commerce is one, which is really good. Anyway, he's just he's just really inspiring. I've been picking up some of his books that I haven't read in a while lately and sort of thumbing through them and um, found this quote um, that I happen to have handy. Um, but basically it just says, when asked if I'm pessimistic or optimistic about the future, my answer is always the same. If you look at the science about what's happening on Earth and aren't pessimistic, you, you don't understand data. Um, but if you meet the people who are working to restore the Earth and lives of the poor and aren't optimistic, you haven't got a pulse. That's and and I, that just really resonated with me because it gave, you know, it, when we live in this world where we're, you know, for me, I'm always – you know, reading reports and staying current on the latest and looking at uh, it's, it's just really easy to feel like you're getting clubbed over the head and having a sense of hopelessness. But when it's framed like that, it's like, yeah, that is right. You know, I mean, if we look at the data um, and, and you, if you, if you're able to look at that, look at the uh, amount of wildlife that's going extinct um looking at you know population issues or growing worldwide population causing massive deforestation just all, all these things like it, it can get pretty depressing um but that said um i think that he's right in that you know there's a lot of good happening in the world and um like i'll give you one example i, I, I was on your on your site. And so it's not just climate change that we're talking about. There's also like environmental conservation issues, um, that are, that are, that are all related. Um, but like pebble mine, for example, um, which is a big deal. And then, you know, so I'm, I'm perusing your website, like I always do, um, seeing what's happening out there, making sure I'm, I'm staying current. And I see that, um, where was it? Was it like a hundred thousand dollars were raised for, for? Yeah, for for the Bristol Bay Defense Fund. Um, 
through the American Fly Fishing Trade Association had an event, I think it was August 24th, called A Day for Bristol Bay. And so anglers came together um, and contributed items uh, to auction on and, and stuff like that. And it raised $100,000, which is incredible. Um, right. I mean, that's unreal. Yeah. And, um, and, and like, here, here's another thing. This is super cool. I'm just, I'm just going to mention this if you don't mind. Um, <laughs> no, but I mean, I, I just like, you know, I, when I, when I look at this stuff, I, I'm, I'm looking for, um, I, I'm looking for the positive spin on some of this stuff. And so just a couple quick things, like I would encourage anyone listening to this to check out the venturingangler.com and check out their environmental section. Um, so for example, uh, Turnif Flats Resort in Belize, they just added solar panels to meet 80% of their energy needs. That's awesome, right? That fights climate change, saves them saves them money. Um, you know, Rep Your Water, they're now um, introducing some products that are eth- ethically sourced and uh, made from organic cotton products. Um, so I think that, you know, Indie Fly, um, they've got a lot going on. Um, they've introduced a new monthly giving program helps them create, you know, more sustainable communities around these, some of these fly fishing, uh, lodges. So there's, there's tons of like, just shitty things happening, (laughs) um, as it relates to the environment, but just as, just as many of those things are happening, I think there's just as many good things happening. Um, yeah, I like that quote that you gave. Um, and, uh, it's true. If you're not looking at the data, I mean, if you're looking at the data, you, you should be, you should be deeply concerned. I, and, and there is real horrible suffering happening right now. Um, and if you're not seeing what people are doing, you know, and not hopeful, there, there should be concern there. And so with that in mind, I'll, I'll be a little bit hopeful real quick. <laughs> let's let's hear it i want to i want to hear tim harden hopeful exclusively on on the sustainable angler yeah but that's just to throw a bone before i get dark again <laughs> the, the and i told you this earlier um before we were recording but i was giving a talk a couple of years ago and when i was introduced someone said something like you know now tim harden's going to give a more hopeful message and i looked over and i was like i didn't agree to that and (laughs) and i was like it's it's not going to happen um and because i i do think you know i think we tend to do this i mean human beings naturally want to be in a in a safe place that's what all animals do uh we try to move towards safety you know, and that's why we love movies where the, the movie ends and everybody's safe and happy again. But <laughs> we're right. not moving in that direction. Yep. And, and so I do, you know, actually, it was helpful to me to have you reading those those things from The Venturing Angler. Um, because it's true. You know, there is all that good work happening. At the same time, I get one of the things that discourages me the most is the fly fishing industry. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, when I see people in like the San Francisco Bay Area being like wasteful with electricity and and consumption and stuff like that, I'm like, great, awesome. The most, <laughs> the most maybe the most aware community of people uh, when it comes to environmental issues is engaging in behavior like this, where we're doomed. 
Mm-hmm. And I kind of feel that way a little bit about the fly fishing industry. And I could go on and on and on and on about the achievements, like the the Klamath issue. You know, I'm a I don't I don't do ambassadorships, but you know, if it's an environmental organization, I'm all in. And so California Trout's one that I'm excited to be a part of. And they they do really awesome things in in on the West Coast. Um, and so, you know, I cannot wait to see those dams come down and you're right. A lot of companies now are doing cool things. You know, an, an environmental activist is on, is the time magazine person of the year this week. Yep. Um, yep. Gre- Greta Thunberg. Thun- yeah. That's huge. And, you know, as someone who's always been interested in politics, never, ever, ever hearing about environmental issues ever. And this was in 2016. I was outraged that the debates, when held by progressives weren't bringing up environmental issues or it was mentioned as like an afterthought, like, Oh yeah. And you know, world peace. Um, <laughs> and this too. Yeah. Right. But now it is a central issue and it has to be, it would be absurd if it wasn't. Um, and, and so, you know, those good things are happening, but at the same time, like, I think we have some, we have a lot of work to do in, in the fly fishing world. And so, you know, one of the things I teach is that, and I I think, you know, I've, I've pulled, these aren't my ideas. I've pulled these from other sources, but I think they're now widely used, um, is that there are four perspectives on the environment. Um, you can be a developmentalist and the president is a, is literally a development, the developmentalist. Um, and I think that that term doesn't need a whole lot of explanation, but you, your view of the environment is to develop it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the conservation. Uh, I'll, I'll, so that's one extreme. The other extreme was, is, is the critical ecological justice. And so that's where you think like there has to be, and, and there can be a whole wide range of things in this category. I would say that sometimes I fit in this category. Sometimes I don't where there needs to be, you know, just this dramatic drawdown of behavior. Um, one step up from that is preservationists who seek to protect the environment because it ought to be protected. So, for example, yeah, I've never been to the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. I've looked at it enough from a distance to know that it should be protected because it's special for its own sake. And conservationism is one step closer to being developmentalist. I am a conservationist. I Last week or the week before, I became a lifetime member of the Backcountry Hunters and Anglers Association. I try to support conservation as much as I can. The one negative thing about conservationism, and by the way, again, I'm all about conservation, <laughs> but the I, one thing about it is, unlike a preservationist who wants to seek to protect the environment for its own sake, conservationism is wanting to do much of the same thing, protecting uh, wild places, but for our own use. And so my, I, I, I think we often do a great job at conservationism. Um, Like this Bristol Bay effort is so important, but we don't do a great job often. <laughs> and what we're not doing a great job often at is 
protecting things so that we can use them. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's some shortcomings there. Um, and uh, I see so much like social media activism that, and again, like the hundred grand for Bristol Bay wouldn't happen without social media activism. What backcountry hunters and anglers and Caltrout and Indiefly and others are able to do with social media probably does more for the environment and conservation than we could have ever dreamed of. Um, but if we're an industry where it, it becomes a trend, it's you know a hashtag and little else, then the first thing that comes to my mind is the quote from Edward Abbey that's used in Damnation, um, sentiment without action is the ruin of the soul. Like it's almost as if it's we're worse. It's like sentiment and like pretend action. Yeah. Um, and so I get, I get hopeful, I get excited. Uh, and, and I guess that's the way it is with every justice issue or, or any type of moral issue or anything. You know, you have moments of excitement, enthusiasm and despair at the same time. Like, um, so um, I think we, you know, it's exciting to see all these companies stepping up. Um, but as an outdoors company, as you said earlier, you know, you need to be able to sleep at night. Well, you should. Um, but there are a lot of companies, some of them being the most profitable companies in the outdoors industry, who do as close to nothing as possible. And sadly, we're not really even using the term climate change yet. Like you are, you see some companies uh, like Patagonia and a couple of others even saying climate change. Meanwhile, like Shell and Exxon, they're, they're using the term climate change for like, you know, with ulterior motives probably. I don't trust <laughs> their climate change advocacy at all. No. However, at least they say it. Well, and so, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's part of it, right? It's just, there's enough of a, so anyway, hundred percent agree with what you're with that. And by the way, I also like those four different, that, that's really interesting. The preservationist, conservationist, developmentalist, and what was the other extreme? Yeah. I mean, well, I'm using one book that uses critical ecological justice. Um, I'm sure it's, it's renamed in other ways by but, other. but whatever i mean it's still a, an interesting way to categorize the different mindsets because you're totally right i mean that's i feel like i maybe have a foot in the conservationist camp and the other in the preservationist camp i think i, I for me i would say that i am probably more of a preservationist than anything but i see I probably see more hope in conservationism than anything yeah. because unfortunately it's the conservationists that are making um, the, they're making the moral case for protecting areas, but they're also making the economic case. And that's, exactly. that's going to sell at the end of the day. Uh, that's exactly right. That that's and, how that they're able to, to get things accomplished is, you know, if you're, Hey, look, there's a, you know, there's a real economic impact to the fishing industry in this area. And, you know, those are the things that, Hey, this creates jobs. Like those are the things that 
to to drive and change policy are necessary other than we should keep some places sacred for the sake of them being kept, being left alone that doesn't that doesn't sell in a uh, right in a lot of arenas are are you familiar with Kohlberg's theory of moral development uh uh-uh, no so Lawrence Kohlberg was a psychologist at the University of Chicago and Harvard a while ago. Um, And, you know, like any type of philosophy like this, uh, there's, you know, plenty of room for criticism, but he believes that people develop morally in stages. And so, you know, like a child obeys rules to avoid negative consequences and they're rules set by others. You know what I mean? Uh, A step up from that is like, hey, if I do this for somebody, I might get something back. And it goes up towards this progression that way. Um, and ultimately, you know, the sixth stage is this like selfless, selflessness where you're not getting anything in return or receiving any type of like, you know, any type of benefit whatsoever for trying to do good. Mm-hmm. In fact, you might actually suffer as a result of your interest in doing good. We're not there. <laughs> right, right. Uh, we, we, you see it. It happens. Um, but we're definitely earlier in the stages of moral development. And I'm not saying that we're like, we're immoral or people are immoral. I'm not, you know, anytime you talk about environmental issues, you're going to get a bunch of comments, people saying that you're self-righteous or whatever. But <laughs> which is, which is so, that's a whole nother, com- that's a whole yeah. nother conversation. <laughs> that's so bizarre. But anyway, <laughs> but the, the point I'm trying to make is like, I have concerns and, and I'm, I'm really tuned into social media. And so I think that's definitely a factor mm-hmm. where you see, you see so much behavior. And I think this is why I mentioned my, how I was early in my career in the fly fishing world. You see so much behavior that is just so self-serving that it, it's just this ultimate failure and the um, it, seeing like pretend activism from people whose quote unquote fame and fortune, if you will, is from the outdoors. It's, you know, I don't know what word. I was going to say next, but it's not a good one. (laughs) And so, you know, I want to emphasize again, I am very, 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 very pro conservation. And um, I just, you know, I, I I became a lifetime member of the Backcountry Hunters and Anglers Association. I'm so excited about what they're doing right now. Well, let's, let's, let's talk about that. I mean, what, 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 what drove you to, to make that decision? And yeah, I'm glad you asked. Um, (laughs) They came out of nowhere. Um, I can't remember how old they are, um, but I remember seeing them at a, a tri- at a show and saying like, "Oh wow, that's cool." And the person responded that I was with responded to me and was like, "You know, who are those guys? What a joke!" Well, they're no joke. Um, in a short amount of time, they've been putting up a good fight um, for conservation in a way that is way less self serving than other conservation groups. By the way. I don't mean that that came out wrong. I don't think they're self-serving. I think a lot of conservation groups are. Okay. Um, I had 
one major hunting organization um, came out with a press release praising gutting the Endangered Species Act recently. Um, right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. The, the um, another major hunting uh, conservation organization had Jason Chaffetz last year as their keynote speaker at their annual gala or whatever. Jason Chaffetz, for those who don't recall, is uh, the Republican. He was a Republican senator from Utah, who I think upon the day, I could, you know, or close to it, but I think it was the day that the Senate was sworn in, the Republican majority Senate was sworn in with Trump, introduced a public land grab bill. Um, <laughs> And he becomes the keynote speaker at a conservation organization dinner. And by the way, he was so ridiculed for this that he ended up posting a photograph of himself um, in camo, like in the woods or something, and you know, taking back the bill. He, I think he withdrew it. So you you have BHA who likes to emphasize that you know they're apolitical, but they care about certain issues and they go after it, and you know. And they're they're good. Their communications team is strong. And so when, you know, that that new guy was appointed, if I could, I, I think I could remember his name if I tried, but I don't want to. Um, <laughs> the guy who was appointed to be the head of the Bureau of Land Management who doesn't believe in public lands. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. That's nice, isn't it? Right. He, immediately, BHA is out, you know, with an action plan. And so I'm finding now that I'm learning about critical issues from them before I hear about it in the news or elsewhere. So, um, you know, I, I, I'm pretty excited about what they're doing. And so, um, and I'd also, you know, the week before this, so this was giving Tuesday and they had matching funds. And so that's one of the reasons I thought it'd be a good time to become a lifetime member, but also the week before I was on a mule deer hunt in Montana on mostly on public land and you know there's something amazing about that like um having this world open up to me that i can explore miles and miles and miles of like just this amazing country at the same time like i'm on on x the app half you know a lot of the time making sure that i'm not crossing this line or that line um and you know, having had a difficult season of hunting in California when it comes to, you know, trying to find accessible areas um, that weren't crowded or whatever. It's, it's an issue that that's, you know, it's, it's tough to see how hard access can be. It's great to see how, how, rewarding and meaningful and beautiful access can be. I'm going to remember that trip to Montana for the rest of my life. And so I wanted to support a group that was putting up a good fight for that. Yeah. And, 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 and there's something to be hopeful about like right. an organization sort of coming out of nowhere. I don't know how many years ago um, and really doing good, meaningful work. Yeah, and there's I mean, lots of them like that. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you know, there's, but, but backcountry hunters and anglers, um, I, I agree with you, you know, I'm a, I'm a member and, and supporter because of really for, for me, it was about giving, um, when I moved out West and sort of got introduced to fly fishing and sort of fell in love with that. Well, I wouldn't have been able to do that without public lands. 
and you know a sense of i think um responsibility to ensure that the, the next generation and generations after um are able to to if they choose to have those same experiences and to to do anything to jeopardize that is you know i think in, inherently wrong but but a a, a completely agree that backcountry hunters and anglers is definitely a success story and one that is inspiring positive change. And I mean, that's what this is all about, whether it's climate change, public lands. I mean, all these are sort of interrelated in a way, Um, particularly when you talk about like drilling on public lands and and things of that nature. Um, But it's, uh, it's interesting. And, and, you know, at the same time, like just getting back to how we can fail as an outdoors industry, there was a show on, I think it was on television last week or the week before. Um, I'm not going to name the show or what channel, but it was, the title was something like, I guess I am kind of naming it, but the title was something like Donald Trump, Donald Trump Jr. Modern Day. Theodore Roosevelt (laughs) (laughs) and (laughs) I guess they're both from New York but why because he hunts and fishes right what is he doing that resembles in any way what Theodore Roosevelt did when it comes to public lands and and respect for creation and stuff like that so the it, it it gets to the heart of where my concern is doing the sport doesn't make you part of the solution. I mean, it does when you pay for like licenses or whatever, but we can't give ourselves too much credit. And, and certainly I fail all the time. Um, But uh, you know, there, there was one group that basically was arguing that for a while where like, if you're involved in said outdoor activity, or I guess unsaid, but whatever. The, if, if you're involved in this act, outdoor activity, you are fighting a good fight, in other words. Yeah, that's not... No, you're not. That's, that's not how it works. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that's un, uh, that is untrue. And if we're going to, I mean, talk about participation trophy. Mm. Um, that's insane. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I, I and, and, you know, again... I guess being involved in issues like this, you just, you see moments of, you know, good and bad. And that's just how these, how it goes with these issues. But, you know, Field and Stream magazine, they had a a big social media post that got a lot of attention a couple of years ago with concern about where trout will be in 2050. And it was not a positive outlook. Um, And, you know, like I said earlier, oil companies are talking about the threat of climate change. So I think the angling community really needs to step up their game. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I I think, um, if you're not, if, if, if you're a climate change denier, you're really, I, I, I don't know. I mean, you're, you're, you're not paying attention and, it, it it's everywhere. I mean, Charleston this year, Tim had over 70 days where we flooded, which is unprecedented. Um, every year is another record for when downtown floods. Um, so sea level rise is here. 
It's going to start affecting property values. It's going to cause a lot of problems. It's also, you know, certainly not going to enhance our fishery. Um, so I think that we're, we are as a, as a country and, and hopefully as an industry, um, moving more towards accepting the science um, that's overwhelmingly clear on climate change in particular. Um, and then the next thing is, hey, well, what, what can I do about it? And I think one of, if not the most powerful thing um, that, that an individual can do is to let their elected officials know that, um, that they care about climate change, they're concerned about climate change, and that they're uh, they they they'll vote for those uh, in, in office that are that are looking for solutions because it's you know it, it's it's our generation um, and it's the generations after they're going to have to deal with the repercussions of these of the deniers. And, um, so I would encourage anyone, if you're looking for an easy way to do that, you can, uh, check out, um, conservation Hawks. They have a yeah. lot of good information, uh, protect our winners, another good organization. Um, but just thought I'd throw that out there just as a, as a, Hey, well, what can I do right now? If you're listening, well, Hey, get, get, get on the horn or send an email to your elected officials and just say, I'm, I'm concerned. I'm a, I'm an angler. I'm a hunter and um, you know, this is deeply concerning to me. And, and on that note, I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, I don't know if you saw it over the summer on Instagram for the first time I called out my or the followers of the venturing angler and said, in effect, yo, (laughs) (laughs) if we post about like a new rod or something, the traffic is through the roof. The click-through traffic's insane. It's, you know, this, it's everything you could dream of if you're running a website. If I say, take 30 seconds to sign a petition or, you know, submit a comment to the Fish and Wildlife Service or, or whatever on an issue, it's almost nothing consistently. That's so interesting. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I think that the experience of that for the last nearly decade or however long it's been on the venturing angler of, you know, post the new sage trout LL rod and get, I hope I didn't didn't just mess up the sponsorship of the show, but (laughs) you know, and, and then you get all these clicks and then you say like, Hey, um, take action for uh, the most recent issue that I was involved in was Deschutes River. Yeah. I mean, we had a hard time getting people who live there and some guides to sign a petition that took less than a minute or put, and that wasn't, it wasn't a petition to submit comments um, about wanting a habitat conservation plan. Um, You know, taking the, people wanted it to take the health of the river and and the fish and other species under consideration. It was like pulling teeth. And so for those who just listened to Rick's advice about protect our winners and BHA and all these other organizations, when they send you like an action alert or you get one from the venturing angler or Rick or whoever else, it takes less than a minute, please. Like you, (laughs) 
we need your voice. And for me, sometimes people thank me for taking action. Usually you don't, you get criticism, but people thank me for taking action or volunteering time or, or pushing a post or whatever for somebody. I, it, it's weird to be thanked because if you're going to work in the outdoors industry and make money on the outdoors industry, how could you not take action? Right. Um, and so, you know, we, we, we have to, we just have to. Well, I think that that's, um, I think that's right. And I think that, um, I'm glad that got brought up because that is really important, right? You know, I mean, if we're not, if we're not all voicing our opinions, um, we're going to get looked over and things are not going to go the way that, that are beneficial um, to, to anglers um, or hunters for that matter. So I think that's really important uh, point to, to have made. And, and there's the easy stuff. Like Bristol Bay has be, you know, that's, oh man, I'm, I'm so concerned about that one. Seriously. But that's that's become the easy one where it's fashionable, <laughs> right? To to fight for Bristol Bay, um, and, and there's there are some issues like that. We got to do better than that. We got to do better than like the cool ones. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I, no. I, I hate. I know, like Scott Heed is is gonna, you know, and other people who are fighting the fight on that are gonna be like, oh man, don't call it the cool ones. But it. it we can't be activists because it's trendy to do so. And that happens a lot. And it, it doesn't, I don't mean to disrespect the people who care deeply about the issue and are doing it, but someone said to me a few years ago, um, there was a different issue in Alaska that this guy was fighting for. And he said, you know, I, I it's really hard to um, push this issue forward because Bristol Bay has for the last however many years has sucked all of the oxygen out of the room. Uh. And I agreed with him for a while, but I was thinking about that quote last night because I knew I was going to talk to you today. Bristol Bay hasn't done that. Bristol Bay is requiring very little of a large group of people. Um, you know, we, we they they call on us to make comments, to you know, sign our names to things, to donate, um, and and we you know we need to give that as much as we can but we can give a lot more. Yeah. Um, and, um, and I need to give a lot more. It's, it's, this is the time we have to. Yeah. I, um, I, I agree. You know, I mean, there's, you, you, everyone needs to certainly do their part and do what they feel is right. And whatever that is, you should be fighting for it because I think, um, I can't remember the, the entire quote off off the top of my head, but you know, it's like Tom 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 McGuane, right? You know, we've reached a point on the life of the planet where every angler needs to be a, a watchman on the high seas, you know. Um, and if you're not paying attention, it can go away um, because there's people who um, mining companies and in Pebble Mines case and. Um, oil and gas in terms of public lands and, and elsewhere that um will will work really hard to to make sure that they're that they're making money and are are, are, are not concerned about the impact to the environment and, and our fisheries so um and and if we don't fight now not just because things are worse 
and, and and there are i mean i grew up on the potomac river potomac river is better but you know globally things are worse mm-hmm. climate change is yeah and just the pollution alone like pollution's bad right for, some, for climate deniers i'm sometimes like all right fine let's talk about pollution um you know it, it's bad but if we don't you know things things are bad now um you know there's the pollution there's there are the issues with public lands and and and, and water water quality and so forth but the art the counter argument is always jobs someone said that to me <laughs> two comments that i'll probably remember for a long time in response to a post on bristol bay was who told you this mine was going to be destructive a birdie that was one it's literally in the the blueprints. <laughs> I don't know. Is it is it blueprints for mine or whatever it is, the plans. Uh, and another one is all I hear is jobs, jobs, jobs. Well, this is the lowest unemployment, I think, in my lifetime. So at what point do we stop compromising everything that is sacred for jobs? Like right. when someone needs to, if you're going to keep making the jobs argument, you also have to let us know when we can finally start talking about what is actually sacred rather than short-term jobs for, for whatever. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a, there needs to be, um, there needs to be a, a a deeper understanding of what um, should be protected for not not for its economic value, basically. You know, I mean, like, as you mentioned, something being sacred, and there needs to be areas um, that you know, similar to what we talked about earlier, like the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. I've never been there. I've it would be cool to have an opportunity to go there, but you know, I, I, we we shouldn't have to be fighting our government uh, over keeping some areas, just letting some areas alone, and stop trying to develop it. Um, as you said, for for the sake of jobs, in that case. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, to to get back to to, den- to denial, there's two points I want to make. Um, one, I'll, I'll start with the short one first. Like, uh, I think we also need to think about what denial means. Um, Donald Trump is obviously a climate denier, and it's very clear that he denies the science. When I thought Hillary Clinton was going to be president, um, because Donald Trump uh, talked about grabbing women, the, the next class I went to, I think this was the next class that I was teaching, I talked to the students about Hillary Clinton as a climate denier. The idea that how she's responding to the environmental crisis is in its own way, denial. And so, you know, I think climate denial is a failure, but I also think there's a there's a, another failure for those who believe in the science but are dismissive of the reality. And so I think we all need to all of us, including me, because I think my behavior would change if I confronted the reality more. Mm-hmm. Um, we all need to be honest about what's really happening and, and take action in response to what's happening. 
the other thing is is again like okay you, you know I, I sit and i sit with family members who deny that climate change is real and they're dismissive of these issues well if, if i were to look at my life in terms of like meaningful moments much of it is in nature and so growing up and fishing in in southern maryland and west virginia and a little bit in western maryland those areas in many ways are, are dead like they what i experienced as an angler doesn't exist there anymore um i moved to colorado and you see a lot of the same thing um and then in more recent meaningful um experiences like you know, I went to an area of Argentina that moved me and I think formed me in some ways. And there's a constant threat of mining in that area. Yep. I went, I would say one of the most life-changing experiences I've ever had. And, and to use the word sacred again, where like, I find myself, I find the divine, I find a, an experience of like wholeness that is very hard to, to duplicate in in the craziness of day-to-day -day life in the tongas national forest i was probably changed forever in 2016 and now it looks like we're gonna have roads there <laughs> <laughs> if if the roadless rule is is lifted for the tongas there is no more Tongass National Forest as we know it. There just isn't. And for those who you know downplay um, language like that, well, everything I experienced as a child is pretty much gone or in my early 20s or whatever. So why would I not think that putting roads in a place that is incredibly inaccessible wouldn't change things? So it will. It's a guarantee. And so, you know, it's... I, I, I can't remember the original point, but the way we talk about these things, I think, um, we, I think we just have to face it with a brutal honesty, and then all of us come together and respond accordingly. Yep. Um, well, yeah, and and I think that's the probably a good takeaway um, for for everyone is is hey, you know, take action, do what you can. Um, and as anglers, you know, I feel like we have a responsibility to, uh, to do that. And, um, so, yeah, so I, I, I do want to shift gears though, a little bit from, from environmental now, Tim, um, and just talk, let's just talk a little fishing, right? Cause this is the sustainable angler. <laughs> That's um, right. Good. <laughs> and, when you're like, when you said you're shifting focuses, I'm like, what could we, I thought you were going to bring up the Wu-Tang Clan. Yeah. But, <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so this is definitely going to make it just so everyone knows every time when we were in the Bahamas, every time Tim hooked a bonefish, I'll, I'm going to let you say it. His immediate response was, Wu-Tang! <laughs> <laughs> and just by coincidence, um, I, you know, I woke up early. I wake up early every day, but, you know, I, I just threw on some clothes for, to, to be ready for the podcast. And I look down, I'm wearing a Wu-Tang Clan hoodie right now. Um, 
So <laughs> speaking, speaking of which, I have to say this, there is a Wu-Tang documentary on Amazon. On Prime Amazon. Right yeah. I haven't watched it yet, but it, it's, I'm like waiting for a special moment. <laughs> <laughs> Like I can't just have it on in the background, so I'm, I'm gonna watch that soon. Um, all right. So, I got, what are um, what are I'm just gonna I'm pulling these literally off the top of my head. So, um, we're talking a little bit about what are some of your favorite fishing related books that maybe you've read recently? Any anything good? Oh man. Um, No, because <laughs> <laughs> most of the books um, that I, I read, uh, well, I, I get very interested in a lot of non-angling outdoors stories. Okay, uh, all right. Well, but, hey, well let, let, let's wrap that into the mix then. Just in it. But it, well, yeah. So, uh, yeah. I'm trying to think of, of what there's been lately. I'm looking over at the bookshelf and it's, it's mostly magazines, but um, I, the, the angling ones that I do read um, are like skill development books. Um, yeah. And so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm actually just <laughs> to answer your question without being caught too off guard is you know, I'm, I'm scrolling through book reviews on the venturing angler. Um, oftentimes like I'll be getting ready for a trip and just like dive into, you know, a book about bone fishing, uh, or, um, yeah. Like, like if you're about to go bone fishing, you're like, okay. And then read up on it a little bit and try a new technique or yeah, basically improve. Yeah. I mean the, the books that I keep opening and then reading parts of and closing, um, Yvonne Chouinard's simple fly fishing yeah techniques for tinkara rod and rod and reel i've never tinkara fished before but i i do think what he uh, i was at los pampas lodge in argentina and he goes down there a bit and i was hearing from people who fished with him talk about how he fishes um and he really just strips it all down and and is simple about it yeah um and i like that so i've been i've been reading chunks of that one um uh and and the other one that stands out is i just got some stories his lesson Ivan schnard's lessons from the edge of business and sport um i think he, the way he communicates breaks me out of like <laughs> sometimes i'll make conclusions <laughs> right a little prematurely <laughs> <laughs> or think i understand things in certain ways um and I think he is his his blunt and harsh way of communicating, um, some, sometimes harsh, is good for me because it, it takes me out of like sometimes traditional ways of thinking, uh, or um, you know social norms or preforms, you know viewpoints formed by social norms, I guess I should say. And so he, he gets me to sort of break out of that a little bit. Um, and, uh, yeah, I've been trying to get inspired as a writer a little bit more. I want to change the, you know, I, I want to change 
some of the topics I'm writing about. So um, I, I've got Points Unknown, which is a book that came out a long time ago. I don't, think, I don't think it's still in print from Outside Magazine. That's just a range of stories from like Shackleton Expeditions. and uh, That's and, cool. And, yeah, and there's some crack hour in there, I think, too. Um, but I, I've, I've been you know, diving into photography more. I guess I would say that if, I, if I've been reading anything over the last couple of years, more than anything, it's, it's books on photography. So, which I bet are just really engaging text. No, like, <laughs> I, I I'm kidding. <laughs> I, I'm just, I, uh, my wife bought a, I, and I, now I'm blanking on the camera, but she bought a nicer camera. And so I was like, I was trying to use it. So I was like reading the manual and I was just like, I don't, no, I, like I think I, I think I'm just gonna have to make a ton of mistakes until I figure it out. I was like, because I don't think I can actually <laughs> every, read this. Every time I read a book on photography, and there have been a lot of them, I'm hoping it's the last. Yeah, and it, it's, <laughs> it just keeps going. But it's funny. I've got these. I've got three enormous bookshelves of books, and a lot of it's magazines. I you know I love like climbing and surfing magazines and stuff like that. Even yeah. though I don't do either sport, um, it it when people say every so often have you read all these books i've read part of most of them uh, so like right now i'm looking at bruce chatwin's in patagonia which is a classic book about Pat- about patagonia i bet you i i read a decent amount of that book um but if i were to look at all these books and see what i've completed the list would be pretty small i've read a little bit of a lot of books. <laughs> um, yeah, that's good. You just like to peck at them a little bit. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, some people are going to take issue with that, but nah, art inspired me to be honest. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, all right. So related to fishing, um, what is uh, which I kind of ask everyone this, but it's just always interesting. I think. Um, what is your favorite species to catch on fly? Salt or fresh? Huh. Or one of you, I, I mean, it's so tough. It's kind of like such a, such well, a, it could mean so many different things, but. The, 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 I have my, I've been tarpon fishing a number of times. Um, I'm by no means. I have no right to say I'm like a, I, I have no right to say that I am any sort of tarpon angler because of, you know, I, I've caught, I've caught a few. Um, that experience is like transcendent. It's the first time I caught a tarpon, I, I told the guide that I needed a moment. And I sat on the bow of the boat, like with my head down and just processed for a while. Something happens. And I said to him before I caught my first tarpon, um, this is Jason Sullivan, who's like the most, he's the coolest guy. He's so quiet, (laughs) (laughs) which is kind of rare among tarpon guys. (laughs) But he's just like this really nice, kind Everglades guide. So I said to him, I was like, well, how do I know if, if Darwin ate? And he's, he said, everything stops. And I think he just meant the fly, but maybe he didn't. Maybe he knew that there was going to be an experience of 
leaving the world as I knew it. (laughs) Right, right. And that has happened to me every time that I've hooked up with a tarpon. And that makes a strong case for it being my favorite fish to catch. Um, Those fish are, and they were big ones. I mean, they weren't the the huge ones, but they were 50 or 60 pounds. And so, yeah, you know, maybe I've might be all the tarpon that you even want yeah honestly. right and i've never caught a baby tarpon so maybe i'd catch one of those and be like meh but when i catch like a you know eight inch trout i'm i th- this fish are compelling like it, yeah. it's got all of my attention so it'd be between trout and tarpon um i'm at i'm at a point in my experience as an angler where if i can hike 10 miles and eh, not 10 five <laughs> and catch one eight inch trout and be able to admire the beauty of that fish then i had a great day and so right. you know you, you don't get tired of catching trout no no you don't i, I, I recent this past summer i went back out to wyoming for the first time in seven or eight years and um and really the first time I had spent, um, you know, where there was several days where I went, went trout fishing and just like, I, when I moved back to the Southeast, I just got so focused on saltwater that I almost, I don't want to say I forgot about trout fishing, but I forgot how much I loved it until I went back out and did it a few days. I was like, Oh my God. And I was like, this is just, this is, you know, this is, this is what I fell in love with to begin with. Like, this is awesome. Right. Um, so I can, I could definitely relate there. Um, another, another question I have, um, is, you know, so the venturing angler, right. Um, you've gotten, have been fortunate to have fished in a lot of beautiful places, uh any places that come to mind that were pretty pretty special for you um uh in 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 your travels over the years yeah um and by the way i hope this applies to you too my my belief about a podcast is people can turn it off if they want to so if i'm just going on and on (laughs) (laughs) i hope i didn't apply my principle of how to have a good podcast not 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 at all i mean this is this is good but two i mean the 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 hunt i went on in montana was with my friend rick matney who who i mean he's an incredible outdoorsman he's the one who i went to the tongas with too okay um and he's you know, again, that experience was, we, I don't, you know, we wouldn't be having this conversation without him. Not that I wasn't already doing my thing in the industry, but it's, it changed everything for me, um, in many ways, but, um, Argentina, I went to the Rio Pico region of Argentina and Patagonia, um, a couple of years ago with some friends, um, some people I work with in the industry, um, Sean McCormick and Will Phelps and Brian Gregson, and we were getting content and working, um, on several things, uh, down there. And we had, 
the 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 guy who who runs the show down there is this like really charismatic guy named uh augustine fox and we call him augie and he's he's in that film finding fontanellas and so it's that area and that's the guy and he's he's this awesome madman so (laughs) we one night one day he's like hey we should all we should all go camping tonight and none of us were interested in going camping like we were pretty happy with um where we were staying like we liked the little house we were staying in we all came together at night and like got on our computers and you know emptied out uh you know sd cards and took care of gear or whatever and uh had good food he's like now let's go camping and we're like no we don't want to let's go camping and so he kept pushing and we kept saying no and then we were unpacking camping gear (laughs) (laughs) i i i I think he tricked us maybe I, i missed a step in the conversation but it's like brutal patagonia winds not brutal but it was it was very windy um it was it was like the air it was like misty out so it's like this wet wind and we set up the camp on the river um and started a fire and that night was we ate meat around the fire drank wine fernet and coke it was one of the best nights of my life i slept 11 hours in that tent (laughs) and then i woke up in the morning went down to the river drank uh the water right out of the river um and just felt this like level of peace and being content and you know we were there on a project and so um you know we we didn't we didn't have to pay because it was it was work but I was looking at the people who were there, the, 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 the other anglers. I'm like, wow, these guys, you know, people only, no, no matter what you do, for the most part, most people only have so much time off. And with that time off, you're always making a decision to like, you know, a decision to not spend time with family members if you're going fishing or to, you know, not do other things. You know, right. you're always deciding what, you know, you when you when you travel to South America to fish, you're making a decision that it's it's very important. You got to leave family or, or other priorities. So these guys chose to do that with their time. Spent a ton of money, and it's really hard to get there. And we all raved about this night in like the wet wind. And I came to the realization like if you were to go back a hundred years and tell people like, yeah, in the future, one of the best nights of my entire life was when I slept outside, ate meat around a fire (laughs) (laughs) and drank out of a river. They'd be like, what? That's normal life. And I think I told the story on another podcast too. It, It shows us, it was a reminder to me of many, many, many things, including that we are creatures, right? Yeah. When we stop doing our creaturely activities, uh, it hurts us. And when we do them, as simple as they are, one night sleeping outside, eating meat around a fire and drinking out of a river, 
it's so restorative that these guys, these like a very accomplished, um, you know, businessman or whatever, were also saying it was one of the best nights of their life. And every year they look forward to doing it again. <laughs> yeah. It, 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 it reminded me of what my priorities need to be as a, as a creature too. That's awesome. And, and yeah, and actually I think Tim, that's probably a good story to, to conclude with. Um, so I think that, uh, I think that's a great way to, to end, end the show. Um, as a reminder that, you know, we're, we're, we're part of nature, not separate. So sort of tying this whole conversation together, um, is, you know, as, as anglers, I think that we do have a responsibility to protect what we love. And I think part of, or at least for me, part of the angling experience that I do love is the travel component, right. And yeah. getting to see new places and meet new people and fish new water and um, I think what you just said there was pretty powerful and just remembering that a night outside with a uh, good company and uh, just the simple things um, that, that, that the fly fishing lifestyle can, can deliver those types of experiences is, is, is pretty powerful. That's right. Um, so Tim, yeah, I, I, I want to thank you very much for, for your time. Um, everyone listening, um, if you're, if you're not, or you haven't already, um, make sure you're, you're following what Tim's doing at the venturing angler.com. Um, anything else you want to, you want to throw in there before we, um, yeah, I mean, that, that last comment you made is one that I really want to emphasize and put an exclamation mark on. Um, you know, this, this dualistic attitude towards things is always destructive. If you separate things that aren't supposed to be separated, man and woman, you know, black and white, uh, and he, you know, and you can go on and on, but in, for, the top, for this topic, um, humans and nature uh, we have a habit of separating ourselves from something that we're not separate from. And so I think we're reminded of how things are supposed to be when we're in nature. And I think as the fight continues, uh, we just need to <laughs> be mindful of the fact that we are part of nature, all of creation and us, we all come together. And so, um, we can't separate ourselves from it. And when we do, and, and when we separate ourselves from those who are suffering from the environmental crisis, um, that's where injustice comes. And so to make this all work, we got we to gotta, we gotta see things as they are, not in a different reality in which things are separate. Yep. Yeah, I, um, I agree. And I think that is a, a very valid point, you know, um, to to remember that we're all in this together and we're all part of it. And, um, you can't have one versus the other. So, um, I think That's if right. we, if we can work together towards common solutions, um, then we'll be a lot better off. Um, so let's, let's, you know, let's just solve climate change guys. Let's just, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how hard is it? The solutions are already exist. That's right. Um, so let's, <laughs> l- l- let's get on that. And, and while we're doing it, you know, let's, let's, let's wet a line along the way. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right, Tim. Well, 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 thanks so much. I very much appreciate your time, and I'm glad we finally 
uh, got to got to do this. Yeah, that was fun. Thank you. Special thanks to our sponsors, Olakai and Monic Flylines, um, for supporting the Sustainable Angler podcast. Um, the Sustainable Angler is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, we also recently created a YouTube channel, so uh, don't forget to su- subscribe there. And if you like what you're hearing, um, it really, really helps us out a lot. If um, give us a follow, a like, rating and review, or share on social media um, so that we can continue to educate and create more awareness about environmental threats to our fisheries while also sharing success stories that inspire action. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time.